0: This is Almost 107, a Fanshawe College Journalism student podcast.
1: Get real. There has been a lot going on around us in the last few years. From COVID-19 to the Russia-Ukraine war. From the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan to troubles in the Middle East. 15 hours from Islamabad to Toronto but many of these 350 migrants fled Afghanistan more than a year ago.
0: We are now more than 600 days into Russia's war on Ukraine. Ukraine's spring counteroffensive has achieved minor territorial gains. Well, tensions between Ottawa and India have been on the rise after Prime Minister Justin Trudeau accused the Indian government of orchestrating the assassination of a Canadian Sikh. Afternoon, Toronto police say they were present
1: while a Palestinian group launched an unsanctioned protest
0: And away from that,
1: in recent weeks, the world has been witnessing a series of political crises, pushing governments into a turmoil. Israel, United Kingdom and India are the latest ones in this list. Every country has their stand on these events and so has Canada. On some issues they all might be together but on others there is a straight face-off. All these events have resulted in a global political crisis. Hi! I am Anjot Singh, and on this episode of Almost One O Seven, we have Matt Farrell, an educator and political analyst from Southern Ontario, to talk about Canada's role in these
0: crises. I think we, um, again, it, it's um, Canada and, and the Canadians thinking that they have an outsized impact compared to the the reality. I mean, again, we are typically called a middle power. But before we move any further,
1: it's important to understand what the global political crisis is. So to understand it better, let's assume the globe is a playground and different countries are playing together in it. Now, sometimes things happen that make the game not so fun for everyone. That's when we talk about a global political crisis. It's like a really big problem that doesn't affect one country, but lots of them at once.
0: Here is Matt explaining how certain events in other countries affect Canada. So for Canada, um, we are a small country. But we do tend to punch above our weight economically. We're a very integrated economy with a lot of countries around the world. So for us, foreign policy and global affairs are very much important because of that interconnectedness. We're very connected to the United States and Mexico through a free trade agreement, through Europe, Central Asia and China. So for us, anytime there is some kind of global crisis, sort of of an event globally that has an impact here in Canada, then... um, you know, that's something our policymakers have to deal with, because if there is an event, let's say it's a natural disaster somewhere, could be a, a military conflict, anywhere around the world, anything that's disruptive, I think we would sort of label a some kind of global crisis. And, and in Canada, we're concerned how those ripples affect us. Does it affect trade flows? Does it affect our ability to conduct diplomacy? Um, what about our ability to attract students? Um all of those things would sort of fit into that umbrella
1: let's start with canada's involvement in multilateral initiatives especially in context of supporting ukraine matt explains how canada perceives its role in such initiatives
0: well canada has always been a country that likes to get involved in multilateral initiatives because we're a relatively small country in terms of military spending we're probably around like 15 the size of uh, you know, australia or israel sometime some around there if you sort of adjust that for a share of GDP, we're even lower. Um, So we're not a huge country militarily. We don't have a lot of force projection beyond our borders. We rely on on the United States to help us with that. So we tend to prefer initiatives where lots of other countries are helping out as well. And many countries, including the United States, other NATO countries in Europe, have come to Ukraine's aid by contributing supplies or financial aid or military aid, military equipment. And that's an area where Canada has decided that it could play a role. And now we, we tend to per- prefer these multilateral forums because we can do more good in a group than we can on our own. Because on our own, we don't really have a lot to offer. But when you add our contribution onto, let's say, Germany and Poland and the United States, then, then all of a sudden it's it feels like we're able to have a uh, a more substantial impact on something. So we do like these multilateral uh, initiatives instead of just kind of going on on our own unilaterally.
1: Along with it, there are also some tangible benefits for Canada to help Ukraine too.
0: Domestically, and I mean most foreign politics in Canada has a root in domestic concerns, and for us, especially here in London, Ontario, we happen to make we manufacture military equipment, and so if there's a chance for us to to encourage domestic production then, you know, I, I don't see many policymakers that would be saying no to that. I, you know, it's, uh, it's symbolically, it's a good idea for us as a country that likes to promote liberal democracy and freedom to take a stand against authoritarian uh, dictatorship that's invading its neighbor. So that's a good thing symbolically and ideologically.
1: You touched upon Canada's historic alignment with the United States during the Cold War. How has this influenced Canada's relationship with Russia, particularly in the current context of Ukraine conflict?
0: Well, I think Canada-Russia relations have typically followed the lead of the United States. So so during the uh, the Cold War, uh, when there was a sort of nuclear arms standoff between the, the Soviet Union and the Americans, we were lumped into that conflict just because of our proximity to the Americans. And so we were very much on the side of the West, if you want to call it that, the Americans, the NATO countries, and uh, the the British allies in confronting the USSR. And we did that by integrating uh, our air defenses, for example.
1: But is there anything Canadians should be worried about from Russia?
0: If you think about it, in Canada, we share a border with Russia. We are a circumpolar country and you know, during the Cold War, we used to fly bombers up to the North Pole every day, and they'd turn around and come back just to faint a bombing run. And so that's, I mean, we tend to think of the Ukraine conflict as being abstract and over there, but we we do have territorial disputes with Russia in the circumpolar region in the Arctic, and so so that's a very real concern we need to be mindful of. In fact, back in I think 2008, the Russians even went. took a sub to the bottom of the ocean, planted a Russian flag on what we consider Canadian territory. And so there's a actual international legal dispute about who that belongs to. Russia says it's part of their continental shelf. Denmark says it belongs to them. We think it belongs to us because we would, um, if the water above it thawed, it'd be Canadian coast. So there's a lot going on there. Um, So absolutely, Canadians need to be concerned about what's going on in Russia, because You know, to say we could be next might be a bit of a stretch, but other countries could definitely be next. And we already have a bit of tension with with uh, with Russia over territorial issues.
1: Now we will move towards a relatively new crisis between India and Canada. For some background, Canada accused India of killing a Canadian on Canadian soil. In response, India referred Canada as a safe haven for terrorism. Who is right or who is wrong are still topics of different discussions, but the decision of Canada to challenge India in front of the world was a surprise
0: for Matt. Typically things like that don't happen without a lot of deliberation and consultation with allies. And so it uh, it was unique. You know, that's the kind of thing that you wouldn't see a leader do on their own. Typically, that's the kind of thing we might coordinate messaging with some of our other allies, like the United States or Great Britain, for example. Um, so I think it was unusual for us to sort of do it um, on our own like that. Perhaps, again, I'm I'm kind of a skeptic on these things. I do think domestic political pressures might have had something to do with it a desire by an unpopular prime minister to switch the channel and to talk about something different instead of um, its own unpopularity so that could play uh, that could have played a role into the calculation
1: both countries have since fired each other's diplomats from each
0: country how politically reasonable is that it, it's really sort of a, like following a rule book it, it's what you do it's when when you you have a dispute that's the first thing that, that goes is okay you expel some diplomatic staff how many? Well, the other country is going to probably respond in kind. If you res- if you kick out 10, they're going to kick out 12. If you kick out 30, they'll kick out 35. And so there's sort of a just series of, of actions and responses. And that's typically uh, the way it works. You want to signify your displeasure without actually severing relations. India is a
1: booming country. And one thing is sure, Canada doesn't want to end its ties with India completely.
0: A, a big player economically, and it's really growing its influence in terms of, of trade agreements. And so for a country that wants to be in partnership like Canada, you don't want to alienate them. You don't need an excuse to alienate such an economic powerhouse like that. One that you already have deep ties with. Um, when, when you look at Canada's immigration, most of the population growth for new immigrants is coming from India. China is a close second. And so Canada's got a vested interest in, in preserving that relationship and, and again I think there's sort of domestic pressure as well.
1: The latest event that can be referred to as a crisis is the Israel Hamas war. Without going deep into history Matt tells us about the relations of Canada and the Middle East.
0: Canada has typically tried to hedge and offer some some balance. You know, if, if we're going to criticize one side in the conflict, we tend to criticize both sides. We urge restraint, we'll urge restraint from both. We have tended not to rock the boat too much on that front. We 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 try and sort of preserve that middle ground. We want both parties to to be accountable. We want both parties to come to the table and try and negotiate a peaceful solution. That's typically been the response. During the Harper government, there was a little more of a pro Israel stance, I'd say incrementally, because by and large, if you want to imagine Canadian foreign policy as being a straight line, it does kind of waver on both sides of that line, but not much. It, t- it tends to st- not straight too far from the baseline. I think the calculation is really changing for the current government, and that's just because of demographic pressure. I mean, if we think back to um, in, in the 1990s, a lot of you know Canadian foreign policy was really um, Canada and the U.S. That was it. It was dominated by by those issues. And then we get into the the 2000s, and we've got wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria, and that we've got to pay attention to those. Well, one of the byproducts of those was a lot of immigration to Canada from those regions. And so now domestically, the electorate looks very different, very young, for one, and, and also full of, uh, you know, immigrants coming from that part of the list. And so that's going to change the domestic politics.
1: Many in the country are criticizing the government that it's not doing enough to protect Canadians in Gaza. What do you have to say on
0: it? It, it that would depend on who you ask if you ask the the ministry of foreign affairs they would say i mean they'd say what they've been saying is that they're working hard they're trying to work with the egyptian authorities to get canadians out of gaza and it's happening and it's going to continue to happen so that's the type of messaging that you'll hear from from the department of foreign affairs that they're working their hardest if you ask people uh, who have ties to the region you're going to get a very different opinion on 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 whether the government is being effective or not or whether they support the the actions of the the Trudeau government so it, it really depends it really depends you'll get some folks that are looking for a more forceful support of israel you've got others that want them to work harder to get canadians out of gaza and then you've got others that want to urge an immediate ceasefire and so it really depends on the the constituency on who you're asking whether you think they, they think it's been
1: effective or not Well, all these seem to be big international events, right? How does it impact a normal person of London, Ontario, and what does we have to do with it? Well, Canada's stand on these issues depends the most on local politics.
0: Um, On any given day, the electorate is already divided between, let's say, around the age of 45. So people over 45 are very different than people under 45 in terms of the things they want the government to do for them. And so then when you add into the fact that Demographically, that under, 48, under 45 electorate is, is much more diverse um, and much more sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, then that's causing problems for the, the over 45 folks that are used to the old um, status quo. And so I think right now that's what our government is struggling with, is how to balance just the changing demographics of an electorate that is young, but also a lot more diverse than it used to be, and um, how do you, when you're trying to, I mean, run for office? Obviously, he's, he's the incumbent right now, but an unpopular incumbent, and it's going to be difficult to take a, a firm stance on this without alienating uh, a significant chunk of the electorate, and so that, that's going to be that's going to pose a big challenge for uh, for Prime Minister Trudeau.
1: And even though Canada is a big economic player, politically, it's not that strong in front of the world.
0: I think we, um, again, it's um, Canada and and the Canadians thinking that they have an outsized impact compared to the the reality. I mean, again, we are typically called a middle power, right? We sort of economically, we're a country that people want to relate with. We dig a lot of stuff out of the ground. We have oil, we have natural resources, we have proximity to the United States that is advantageous. And so... We're important because of that, those few things. Um, beyond that, we're not really relevant on, on the world stage. And so people, um, especially domestically, that are critical of Canada and critical of the way they're handling uh, different issues in the foreign policy portfolio, I think they neglect that, that we are really not a powerful player. We're a middle power that prefers diplomacy, especially when it's multilateral. We we want to get involved in multilateral forums because we can feel like we're involved We can feel like we're contributing, despite the fact that we are not really a big military contributor to whether it be peacekeeping efforts or or NATO. And so I think we have a desire to feel good and to feel like we're contributing when that might not be the case.
1: And as we touched earlier, Canada's stand on global issues depends on regional politics and it, instead of solving problems, creates constraints.
0: Everything comes back to domestic politics for Canada. It always has. And um, now it's getting more challenging. It used to be, do we allow trade with the United States? Well, now you can't imagine trade without the United States. We've got between Canada, the US, and Mexico, that's a $1.3 trillion trade agreement every year. And so that's a given. And so now foreign policy is has a much different dimension to it because you need to consider how it's going to play electorally. If you recall when um, we were debating whether to investigate Chinese interference in Canadian elections the answer for most people would be absolutely this is the type of thing you can't lose your sovereignty like that and have another uh, foreign entity you know trying to manipulate your elections but politically, if you're running for office and you count about 30 ridings where that would be unpopular because of the, the Chinese population living in those ridings, then maybe you don't want to touch that issue because can you afford to lose 30 seats? Absolutely not. You can't afford to lose Richmond Center or Trinity Spadina. You can't alo- afford to lose those ridings. And so you don't push too hard on those. And so I think that's going to be our biggest constraint for being making meaningful action um, in response to global crisis is how it plays domestically. And I think that's a limiting factor.
1: Thanks for listening. I am Manjot Singh. Find other episodes of Almost 107 on our website 1069dx.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.